morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Thursday, March the 17th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. Nigeria has evacuated at least 1,800 of its citizens from Ukraine since Russia's invasion, but 80 Nigerian students remain trapped in the southern city of Kasson. And I think uh, we will put our heads together with the ministry to see how the uh, remaining students out there will also come out to safety. MP talks between Chad's military government and dozens of armed political groups taking place in Doha are put to hold for 48 hours. Part of the reason for that is that there are over 50 different groups that are there and only 10 people are allowed to serve as spokespersons, I believe. We'll also have a chat with Ghanaian veteran reggae artist Rocky Dawuni on his Grammy nomination. Those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, Nigeria has evacuated at least 1,800 of its citizens from Ukraine since Russia's invasion. But 80 Nigerian students remain trapped in the southern city of Kherson. Russian forces have captured the city, and the students this week called on the Nigerian government to come to their aid. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. It's another cold night in underground bomb shelters for Nigerian students in Kherson. The students have been trapped for about two weeks since Russian forces seized the town on March 3rd. The students say gas and internet services have been cut off and that they are running out of food. Akinyemi Victor, who graduated from the Kherson State Maritime Academy, spoke about the student's situation on Twitter. When there is no gas, there is no heating system. We heat now through or via this heating system of firewood in the house and we cook there too. Some of us who try to escape, maybe trying to go out of the city, the Russian armies are sending them back home. They can't go out. No supplies coming into the city, no, nothing going out and nothing coming in. Kherson, a port city in southern Ukraine, was one of the first areas to fall to Russian forces. An estimated 150 Africans are believed to be trapped in the city, according to online groups calling for their evacuation. This week, the Nigerian students called on their country people to come to their aid. Nigerian Foreign Affairs Minister Jeffrey Onyama responded and said authorities are working with Nigeria's ambassadors in Ukraine and Russia to assist the students. Yusuf Buba is the chairman of a foreign affairs committee set up by lawmakers to facilitate evacuation operations. Our only area of concern now is for those students that are still in Ukraine. And I think uh, we will put our heads together with the ministry to see how the remaining students out there will also come out to safety. Online groups have been promoting the hashtag Evacuate Kherson to raise awareness about the African students trapped there. Some recently evacuated students are also trying to help get their colleagues out. Samuel Otunla was rescued last week from the northeastern city of Sumi and has been creating awareness about the students in Kherson from his new shelter in Hungary. All of these embassies need to be aware of the situation so they can um, keep pushing, um, keep communicating with 
the, um, the humanitarian aid and the, the Ukrainian government, possibly the Russian government and the Russian military as well, to make sure that these people are evacuated because it's not a good experience at all. Ukrainian authorities have accused Moscow of trying to create a republic out of the captured city. Timothy Yubiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Peace talks between Chad's military government and dozens of armed political groups taking place in Doha were put on hold again Wednesday for 48 hours. The talks, which some hope will help ease a transition into civilian rule in the country, have been on again, off again for months. Daniel Ezenga is a research fellow at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. He tells Ricky Shryok that the 50 armed groups are trying to decide who will represent them as they are only allotted 10 representatives among them. The present delay in the talks is that they're unable to, to organize themselves so as to, to identify who will be the spokespersons that represent the, the different groups. And part of the reason for that is that there are over 50 different groups that are there and only 10 people are allowed to serve as spokespersons, I believe. Can you give me a little bit of background on why so many groups, but also what this means for, you know, the people of Chad. You know, I don't think that the day-to-day life of folks in Chad is changing all that much based on these talks. Something to understand about Chad is that while there are many, many, many quote-unquote rebel groups, there's been an armed opposition in Chad essentially since the since independence, really. Um, and some version of the different armed groups today, uh, many of them have roots that go back into the 70s. How much is this um, sometimes semantics uh, and how much are these groups that have different just political uh, beliefs and beliefs on how the government should be laid out, given the context they are armed? How much of this is the language we use on these things? Yeah, thanks for that clarification. And so I, th- I think the crucial point to understand about Chad and Chadian politics more generally is that while you had a leader emerge in the 1990s, Idris Deby, um, who took power in a rebellion, um, and, and then he was able to consolidate power uh, in, in what sort of in some ways appeared to be a regime of multi-party elections. At least multi-party elections were, uh, you know, ostensibly organized um, and, and somewhat routinely held. It, it really wasn't in any way democratic. And, and that's part of why you have all these different armed groups. They are an armed opposition because really in Chadian politics, the way that you can leverage political power is through arms. To go back to the talks, what's on the table, so to speak, and what do you think is likely or realistic to be uh, accomplished at these talks? It's a pretty open question, and I think that the junta is gambling that they will not be able to provide, present that, that, that the armed opposition won't be able to present a united front. And so I think that they are, they're gambling that they're going to be able to pick some people off Uh, in negotiations, appease some of these different armed groups, and and in doing so, uh, weaken their overall position vis-a-vis the junta in in upcoming dialogues and and transitional processes. I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's the strategy that they're employing. Um, You know, that seems fairly clear by the fact that they're limiting the number of of, uh, representatives that can be part of the negotiation. Um, You know, these these are very divisive groups. Um, you know, many of the different of, of the dozens of political military groups, armed opposition groups that are there, you know, trying to identify 10 delegates to represent 
the, the, those 52 groups is going to be a, a near impossible challenge. It's why the dialogue is delayed right from the beginning. That was Daniel Nzianga, a research fellow at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, speaking to Ricky Shryok. A Ugandan court says that an author and journalist arrested for criticizing the president must stay in prison for the time being. Their lawyers suggest that they're being tortured. Halima Atumani has more on this story from Kampala, Uganda. Ugandan author Norman Tumuhimbise and journalist Bikobere Farida of Digitalk, an online television station, have been behind bars since last Thursday and are likely to stay there for at least several days more. A court in Kampala issued formal charges against the two on Wednesday. Lawyer Geoffrey Riamsima, who represented Tumuhimbise and Farida in court, spoke to VOA. And the two charges, one is uh, offensive communication and uh, cyber stalking of the person of the president. They both pleaded not guilty, though they looked uh, tortured. Tumuhimbise and Farida were arrested along with seven other journalists at the Digitalk offices last week by a joint security team comprising Ugandan army soldiers and police officers. Other journalists on the scene were released on bond but also faced charges of offensive communication. Authorities have not commented on the allegations of torture. Turiam Sima says that based on his client's appearance today, he will ask the court to hold a hearing on Monday and throw out the charges against Tumuhimbise and Farida. In recent months, the Ugandan government has been accused of targeting writers seen as critical of the state, particularly writers who focus on President Yoram Seveni and his family. Tumuhimbise is a well-known critic of Museveni and his son, who is widely seen as a possible presidential successor. In February, another author who criticized the president, Kakwenza Rukrabesheja, fled to Germany to seek treatment after allegedly being tortured for two weeks in a military facility. Halima Uthmani for VA News, Kampala, Uganda. Namibia President Hage Geigob announced that the wearing of masks in public and negative tests for vaccinated visitors are no longer required as active COVID-19 cases fall to just a couple of hundreds. Infections in the country peaked at more than 30,000 per month last June, but the southern African country has averaged 14 cases per day during the last seven days, with the total active cases at 222. Fully vaccinated travelers to Namibia are also no longer required to produce negative PCR test results. The United States, European Union, India and South Africa have reached a consensus on key elements of a long-sought intellectual property waiver for COVID-19 vaccines. The waiver authorizes use of patented subject matter required for the production and supply of COVID-19 vaccines without the consent of the right holder to the extent necessary to address the COVID-19 pandemic. You're listening to Debrek Africa. On the Voice of America, I'm Jackson Vongani. Economists in Uganda say that COVID-19 has greatly affected the resilience of cooperatives whose members were forced to withdraw savings lost by their market investments. They said the government must make a deliberate effort to help cooperatives composed mainly of farmers to cope with the effects of the pandemic. Mugume Davis Rwakarinji has more from Kampala. Santa Joyce Lakel who heads at Yak Sugar Plantation, Outgoers Cooperative Society, 
since many sugar farmers were devastated by the COVID-19 pandemic. She says the coronavirus restricted her members, mainly women, from moving from one place to another to purchase merchandise. Vendors have to go and buy a few things, come and sell, go back and buy, come and sell. Many fell out. But together again, because in our cooperative society we have these savings, and these savings has been a good help, a big help, where you save together and then you borrow. That is what has been helping. Lakaira's cooperative is made up of more than 3,000 members with diverse backgrounds, including those abducted in wars, widows, orphans, and former commercial sex workers. Samuel Sentumbwe heads the National Alliance for Agriculture Cooperatives in Uganda. He says many farmers counted losses because they could not access both local and international markets. What actually worsened it is that uh, some of these cooperatives or some of these farmers had actually done the production using borrowed funds. So you have a situation whereby you cannot market your produce, but then also the financier, the banks are also on your neck. They want to recover their money. Jane Amoge Okelo is the head of operations at Uhuru Institute, an economic think tank in Uganda. A lot of the membership withdrew their money especially because they didn't have sufficient savings. So they went to their savings and credit cooperatives and withdrew. Now that affects the liquidity of these cooperatives. Amoge says the government must offer incentives and provide financial literacy to members of the cooperative so they can learn how to associate their businesses. A 2021 World Bank report says COVID-19 caused a sharp contraction of the economy to slowest pace in three decades. The report also noted that both farmers and those in former sectors were equally affected as household incomes fell when farms closed and jobs were lost, particularly in the urban informer sector. The report notes that the country's gross domestic product contracted by 1.1% in 2020. The study is titled Crisis to Green Resilient Growth, Investing in Sustainable Land Management and Climate Smart Agriculture. It says that the crisis led to a significant shift of Ugandans to agriculture and has added the urgency to enhance the sustainable use of natural resources. For VOA News, I am Mugume, Davis Rwakarindini Kampala, Uganda. Most African women work on farms, but few have legal rights to the land they farm, including Kenyan women, despite laws meant to guarantee their rights. Implementation of the laws remain a challenge which African women's land rights groups are hoping to challenge. Juma Majanga has more from Nairobi. Kenya's real estate market has been booming for a decade, with more commercial and residential projects going up in urban centers. Despite the boom, women still face a myriad of challenges to become property owners and builders. Robin Emerson is the president of Women in Real Estate, a networking organization in Kenya. I've sat in on some international development meetings where even just two weeks ago were people that are international donors and international funders talking about affordable housing and everyone at that table were men. Who's at the table talking about where $8 billion are going to go are all men. Now that's unacceptable. Despite the challenges, more women are venturing into real estate development and finding success. 
Leah Wamboi, a successful real estate developer in Nairobi, quit her beverage selling business to become a real estate developer. At some point she doubted her move and thought of quitting. She recalls with a smile. Today she has built over 200 homes in the Nairobi metropolitan area, though she and other women face many challenges in the male-dominated business. So um, you work with a contractor who feels that they should not expect to hear things from a woman or there is a particular way that we've been doing things and this is how we do things. They think that you probably don't know because you're a woman. Having built one of the leading construction materials manufacturing companies in Kenya over the past two decades, architect Winnie Ngumi understands too well the obstacles women face. Even today when we are when I when I represent the company say we are seeking a financial facility, we are trying to get a loan. I do face bias. Um, it is almost as if I should have a man with me in the room when I'm negotiating for credit lines for the business. Women in real estate or wire is working to help. Here again is the organization's president, Emerson. We have a mentorship program that we take professionals to walk with them over that journey and to just assure them to be there to answer any questions that they might have, even addressing sexual harassment issues that they experience and to help them to be confident that they can speak out about these issues and that that space is, for their, is theirs also. Industry experts say it will take time to come out of deeply rooted cultural and traditional beliefs in Kenya and across Africa that make it harder for women to thrive in many sectors. But advocates believe because of women like Robin Emerson, Leah Wamboi, and Winningumi, gradual change is possible. Juma Majanga for VA News, Nairobi. And ahead of the World Tuberculosis Day, which uh, takes place March 24th of this month, the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria is calling on governments to renew the fight against respiratory illness, which kills over 1 million people each year. In South Africa, a hotspot for TB, a mobile screening team is trying to make up for disruptions caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. Linda Giftash reports from Johannesburg. Despite being treatable and preventable, tuberculosis is a leading killer in South Africa. Testing for TB treatment has dropped dramatically during the coronavirus pandemic with deadly consequences. Latoya Weiser's 32-year-old partner is among the fatalities. His tongue, he was only saying that he's feeling bad. He didn't even taste the food. It's whereby I asked him, let's go to the clinic and test. It's whereby we find out that he's positive. Although Weiser's partner was in treatment for two months, he succumbed to DB last August. Testing did ensure their infant son was put on preventative treatment. Both Weiser and the baby remain healthy, but she struggles with her loss. I did wish, because if maybe we did find out sooner, maybe he would have still been alive. Her experience is not unique. An estimated 1.8 billion people globally are infected with TB bacteria, disproportionately affecting those in poorer nations. Of those infected, roughly 10 million people get sick every year. The Global Fund says development of new TB treatments has long stagnated, and the onset of the coronavirus has made matters worse. 
Mohamed Yassin is a senior disease advisor on TB for the Global Fund. We have seen more than 20% drop in the number of people who are access diagnosis and treatment. And then the transmission will continue and that will contribute to overall TB incidence and mortality. TB mortality for the first time increased to 1.5 million from the 1.4 million in 2019. A new mobile clinic supported by the Global Fund aims to close the gap in TB testing. It's reaching people like Weiser who find it hard to get to clinics. Ashley Mbakota is a radiographer for the Van Base Clinic. If you don't know, like surely you can't take your, you can't take, uh, you can't protect people next to you from something that we don't know that you have, even if you're not showing any symptoms. So we just check them. After screening, uh, what we normally do, if we pick up that they have TB, we make sure that we trace the TB, like in families, friends, they all come and test. Governments are also learning from mistakes made during the coronavirus pandemic to improve treatment for illnesses that were neglected. Dr. Ben Montuetti is a district clinical manager for HIV and TB programs in South Africa. In hindsight, we should have, when we're investigating for COVID, also investigated uh, for TB. But we have realized that we we rectifying our mistakes, we are rechallenging, uh, rechanneling our efforts now to integrate COVID activities with uh, primary health care activities, including TB services now. To ensure efforts like this can have the greatest impact, the Global Fund is appealing to the international community for $18 billion. It says the funding will correct setbacks caused by the pandemic and move the world closer to eliminating diseases like tuberculosis. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Johannesburg. Ghanaian registrar Rocky Dawuni is one of the few African artists nominated for this year's Grammy Awards. Dawuni, a music industry veteran, was nominated for his album Voice of Bonbon, Volume 1, in the Best Global Music Album category. From Accra, I spoke to Dawuni about his reaction to the nomination. My reaction to being nominated for a Grammy was one of elation, excitement, and also thankfulness. You know, after years of really working on crafting my sound and working to spread it, and then to have this recognition of my peers, I think that it's also something that it's not only uh, inspires me to move forward, but also inspires my country, Ghana, for artists to recognize that we can also be able to do things on the highest level. Uh, Ghana's music has always, uh, you know, inspired various variants of popular global sounds that came out of West Africa, you know, from Afrobeat uh, to highlight music. So to have our industry now being recognized and uh, also having Grammy nominations, I think it shows that, you know, I am just the tip of uh, an incredible uh, ecosystem of great sounds and innovation and beautiful and great, great, great powerful music. And um, it's time has come. Rocky Downey's music has been described as Afro Roots, a fusion of reggae, Afrobeats, and his native high life. He was nominated alongside other African music heavyweights, including Wizkid, Banner Boy, and Angelique Kijo. When high life music was mixed with jazz and funk, uh, that became Afrobeat, fellas Afrobeat, you know, and then you have people like Manu Dibango who took, you know, different dimensions, Afro jazz or Sipisa, uh, Afro pop, you know. So, and then you had, you know, the juju music 
you know, then the Afrobeat, modern Afrobeat, which is heavily uh, from highlight variants out of Ghana, like Azonto, you know, and then traditional ethnic high lifestyle, you know. So the thing is that it's, it, it has always been the foundation of the sound that has come from that part of the world, you know. And once you infuse that, because the foundation of the sound also came from the cultural base, now you're having the free integration too of the traditional cultural sounds into that high high life setting. And that's what is powering, you know, Afrobeat with its, you know, exotic, cool new melodies and sounds and rhythms, you know. Beautiful people. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voanews.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington wishing you a